Welcome to Career Buzz, the unique radio conversation that empowers lives, enriches careers, and energizes organizations. Hi, I'm Mark Franklin, practice leader of a team of professional career counselors at careercycles.com and co-founder of One Life Tools. I'm pleased to be your host today on Career Buzz. Thanks for tuning in. What's a wedding photographer to do when weddings are cancelled because of a global pandemic? Jess Okonski started fiddling around in a small woodshop to keep busy, learning how to make rolling pins and bowls that she gave away to friends. Soon she started getting requests for custom pieces, so she created an online store, developed workshops, and is now founder and owner of Toronto woodwork company This Lady Wood. Stay tuned for Jess Okonski's career story in the second half of the show, but first... While Mikhail Burke was working on his undergrad, then PhD, in biomedical engineering, he got involved. He led the U of T chapter of the National Society of Black Engineers, and he established Engage, a STEM leadership camp targeting African-Canadian youth. So when he graduated, in addition to teaching engineering courses at U of T, he got more involved. As co-chair of Equity, Diversity and Inclusion Special Interest Group at Canadian Engineering Education Association and then was invited to become the Dean's Advisor on Black Inclusion at University of Toronto's Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering. Mikhail Burke, welcome to Career Buzz. Thank you for inviting me, Mark. Looking forward to the conversation. So glad to have you here today. First, can you let us know what do you like about the roles, the roles that you have currently at the University of Toronto? You know, so many different things. So, you know, in obviously as a course instructor, I really enjoy teaching. Um, in fact, I was uh, a high school teacher for a very brief period of time at a private school um, from my home island of Grenada in the Caribbean before coming to university. And I've always just liked that idea of of imparting of imparting knowledge um, and creating a space for learning. Um, and so that's why, you know, I feel so attracted to these universities, um, you know, university as a space. But one thing that I started to pick up and, and realize um, throughout my experience was that some individuals within the classroom, within learning spaces, feel more empowered than others. You know, there's some voices that tend to, you know, speak up more than others. There's some individuals who tend to be more represented than others. Um you know, and, you know, someone like myself who self-identifies as black, I, you know, that was kind of clear to me. Um, and so I wanted to start to shift my focus, not only on educating, um, but creating spaces and opportunities and access um, for individuals who are traditionally underrepresented um, in spaces and create, a, you know, an environment where, the learning experience could be holistic in nature and empowering in nature and try to identify those traditional power structures and try to mitigate them um, as we try to create a more inclusive environment. And so that's why um, I, you know, when the opportunity to advise the dean on black inclusion uh, came up back in 2018, I took that on and, uh, and have enjoyed the role. Right on. So I want to dive into that role in a little bit later in the interview. Sure. Um, but just to, to look a little bit at the two roles, the course instructor and now this dean's advisor role, what skills would you say you draw on for both of those roles to be successful in them? For a role like a course instructor, obviously, you know, you need to have a certain aptitude or understanding of the knowledge. Um, but, you know, it's also important as a, to be a good course instructor 
I find, is to understand power structures and mitigate that power and also understand that the learning experience is actually a two-way street. I never, I never want to engage the, the, the learning space as though I am just imparting knowledge upon you, but rather my role is to facilitate a community of learning where I may share some information, but I'm also learning from you. And that also helps me refigure how I might delve into other topics. Um, and so that that understanding of powers and, and, and empathy as well, I think being an, an empathetic instructor, uh, I think is key and is a skill that I, I often leverage in the classroom as well. But it also comes back to that power mitigation. You know, you know, you have a you have a deadline. The assignments due on Thursday, at, you know, at eleven fifty nine. Um, you know, but I, I know at the end of the day, what does it mean for me if for certain reasons, you have to submit the assignment on Saturday instead, right? Um, you know, I, I, sometimes I'm empathetic to, to you know, the various issues that students have. They have other courses, you know, they have lives. And what, what does it really impact me? How does it impact me um, to mitigate that power and just let them submit it two days later, <laughs> right? Um, and I think that that's sometimes we get strung up on power structures. And, and so that's... Um, that's one piece that I really uh, take within the classroom. And so I then try to translate that as well um, to that dean's advisor role, right? Um, when we start looking in and, and EDI integration within the faculty in general, EDI, sorry, uh, meaning equity, diversity, and inclusion, um, because a lot of it, again, is power, right? Um, whether it's intentional or unintentional, you know, we have certain structures in place that, um, embolden and empower certain things um, to, you know, to continue to occur and just being able to identify that and mitigate that where we can, um, I think is important to, to that role as well. Nice. I like, I like the way you called it a facilitator of a community of learning and using empathy to allow students to hand in that assignment on Saturday instead of Friday, especially, you know, during the pandemic and when so many people are affected by it and and having that empathy and turn that into action that, that allows students to kind of share in that power. Sure. My guest today is Mikhail Burke. He's a course instructor and Dean's advisor on black inclusion in the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering at the University of Toronto. I'm your host, Mark Franklin, here on Career Buzz. Mikhail, let's just step back a bit. You, you didn't always have these two roles, and I know you started out in in uh, engineering yourself in materials engineering what what led you there first of all what was the the plan when back in undergrad when you were still focused on materials engineering well actually mark if, if you don't mind I, I i don't mind even going further back um you know my link uh to u of t i always felt an akin to the to the place because um, my mother used to be a, a lecturer um, a course instructor herself at New College teaching. She was a lawyer, but she also taught courses in women in the law. And I remember being, you know, about four years old sometimes when she couldn't get a sitter, I'd be sitting in the classroom <laughs> with her while she was teaching. And so, you know, I always had, you know, an affinity to, to the University of Toronto. Um, you know, I always thought um, that this would be the, the school that I would apply to uh, just by virtue of, of that connection. Um, but then when it came to, you know, which field I should choose, I had no idea what I wanted to study. <laughs> and, um, you know, I chose um, 
engineering in part and being in, in science and technology and engineering because of outreach camps um, that were run out of the university called SciCamp. Um, and so, you know, th- I'm just bringing that up to highlight again, like the value of those type of, of, of those access points and those touch points with, with members of the community. Um, and so that's what kind of reaffirmed me that, Hey, let me, let me try, let me try this engineering thing out <laughs> um, within undergrad. And, and so um, I chose material science funnily enough because they had a nanomaterial stream um, and I read a book. I was reading a book at the time that really was going into nanotechnology um, back and uh, back in the day. And so I was like, oh, and, you know, nanotechnology. Okay, let me study nanomaterials if I'm in the nanos, um, if I'm in the material stream. But then uh, I took one course on biomaterials in my third year, and I kind of fell in love with the bio, the bio element. Of, of materials, both biological materials and biomaterials. And so then I, that's actually what I leaned into um, and then did my, my specialization in, in biomaterials. And so that's now, you know, considering my undergrad experience, um, I then, you know, applied um, to do graduate school first in my master's in clinical engineering, uh, which kind of focused more, uh, at, you know, at the, at the healthcare element. Um, uh, but then, you know, really got into a project um, with, uh, you know, I found a supervisor, Dr. Kay Wine, who, you know, really appreciated my material science background and was looking at how cancer impacts bone quality. And I thought the project was really interesting. Um, and so I kind of leaned into choosing that project and what was supposed to be a master's turned into a PhD. And then five, five, five six years later here, um, I was done. And while, while you were in the, the PhD, I mean, that's interesting. Some people take some time out after undergrad. You went straight through with this kind of connecting the dots between, um, you know, what you liked in materials engineering and then the biomaterials. So what was the career plan? You know, as you go through a PhD and you start to see your peers doing different things and some of them want to go off and be professors or researchers and others want to go to industry, what was the career plan and how did it evolve over that period of time? You know, that's that's actually a, a great question, Mark. I think, um, and I think one of our first interactions was in the options program um, that that the faculty runs for late-term PhDs um, and postdocs who are who are kind of navigating that exact question. Um, you know, I think I was interested in the I was interested in the research. I was interested in you know in the project in of itself. Um, but as I was getting towards the end. I realized that um, although I liked the work, elements of the work, and I was good at it, I didn't feel like this was, I tried to picture myself, okay, could I be doing what I'm doing right now, 10 years from now, and feel happy about it? And, you know, I came to the decision that not particularly, like, I, it's it's good work, I enjoyed the project, but it wasn't, the, uh, it wasn't what was stirring me, um, you know, on, on a day-to-day basis. And so I then had a, you know, kind of that grad school existential crisis of, you know, what is it that I, oops, sorry, what is it that I want? Um, and so I, you know, I lean, I took a step back and started looking at what are some of the key things that I valued and what was it both within my undergrad and graduate experience, as well as even before even entering university, what was it that I valued? What was it that gave me joy? And some you know, some key things kept popping up. I liked working with young people. 
um, and and, te- and that teaching element. So I liked, so you know, I liked the university space, but I could see myself. I always leaned more into the pedagogy versus the research. Um, you know, I liked being a TA. I liked teaching. Um, I liked mentoring. You know, younger students, um, and then. I also, again, remembered my experiences, you know, being someone who self-identified as Black within, within engineering and my involvement with the National Society of Black Engineers. Um, I loved, you know, working with that group at that organization with fellow students. I met a lot of community there. Um, but I also liked the conversations that we had about how do we make spaces more inclusive? How do we create those pathways? Um, and so it was like, okay, I want to teach, you know, but I also care about inclusive, you know, but not only about pedagogy, but making it inclusive pedagogy and providing access for individuals um, to, to get into these spaces and to, you know, to demystify power structures and to mitigate them where possible. Um, and so, you know, as I left university, as I left, um, graduated on my PhD, I was trying to figure out where where could I get the opportunity to kind of navigate these different things? Would it be that maybe I work for an NGO? You know, would I teach, you know, a couple courses, um, with, you know, within biomed with, at U of T or somewhere else? Um, but then, uh, but then this, you know, this dean's advisor role then then came up, you know, as a result of, of you know, some issues that students had brought up in a town hall. Um, and, you know, I felt like I, I was well positioned to, to uh, help the faculty on that and they they saw that and they created this role and I was able to get it and then it it allowed all these different elements that I was talking about um, to potentially come together. Nice. Nice. So, you know, I, I like the story as, you know, sometimes people look at a resume or a LinkedIn and they see one thing after another, but you've just connected the dots for us to understand it's one thing because of another. Right. And, and your experiences that led to this engage program, which sounds really great. And that led to, you know, yet more programs and being involved in all these different associations. Right. And, you know, if students are, or, or people going into school or grad school are listening, what, what, what advice can you say about the involvement? You know, what it gets you to be involved in associations like you were involved with as a, as a student? You know, for me, and I, I talk with, with students all the time is what do you want out of your educational experience? Right. You know, why are you going to going to university? You know, and sometimes with undergrads and, and, and even grad students, it's I want good grades and I want X skill set. Um, but I, I view the ability to participate in extracurricular activities, co-curricular activities, taking part um, in these various associations to to allow for one's holistic development, right? Um, kind of help define, like, I find university as the space to navigate who you are. And I think people don't engage that process with intention, right? They engage, let me learn this course material, let me get my A+, not so much what is it that I like, what is it that I don't like, right? Um, and, and develop other elements of self. Um, because particularly when we're entering an undergrad, it's this weird time in engineering. You're 17 years old. You're coming into a first entry professional program. That's what kind of even makes it different than say being a lawyer or a doctor, right? Uh, you're trying, you're engaging this profession 
uh, while still actually still trying to find out who you are. <laughs> and, you know, and so I think there's a lot of value to, um, to diversifying experience and contextualizing experience and, and ways to view and lenses to view the world. And I think various associations, you know, for, for example, for me, it was, you know, the National Society of Black Engineers, but there's so many different associations that are doing work in so many different spaces, um, whether it's not-for-profit work, whether it's community development, right, whether it's, um, whether it's um, tech and the environment. Um, and I think that's all important. Well, also just, you know, associations that may have nothing with um, linked to your technical expertise, but just building your own persona, being part of the drama club, right? <laughs> right? Being part of, you know, the video game association, whatever it is that makes, that brings that joy, it helps you build connections, build community. And it's part of that, that life journey of navigating who you are and what do you want. Mikhail Burke is my guest today. He's course instructor and Dean's advisor on black inclusion in the Faculty of Applied Science and Engineering at the University of Toronto. And I'm your host, Mark Franklin, here on Career Buzz. So, Mikhail, it's, it's an interesting journey, and I appreciated you sharing that story of how being involved in groups and associations on campus can really build your experience, and that National Society of Black Engineers at, at U of T sounds like it was a really good experience for you. And now with this, this interesting role during these really interesting and challenging times that we're in, you know, so many things coming together. Um, Black Lives Matter, the pandemic, like just so many things. And even before this interview, you and I were talking about coming back into the classroom. You and I are both doing some teaching at, at the university. And there's so many things going on. And, and so this role now, which I think is a brand new role um, that you started, it was in 2018, right? How, can you just say a bit, how did this role emerge? And, and what was, you know, how, how did you get involved right at the beginning to make something of it? No, and that's that's a completely fair point. So, um, you know, first and foremost, the 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 formulation, the role, credit of that has to go to student advocacy. Um, you know, a lot of Black students. Um, there was a period of time um, that some Black students felt that there there were certain incidents and certain issues or concerns um, that were linked to limiting Black inclusivity or might have even been called, you know, forms of anti-Black racism. Um, and so there was growing concerns from, you know, members of, of NSBE, as well as uh, National Society of Black Engineers, as well as the Black Student Association. You know, they held a town hall. And, you know, at that point, the faculty, to their credit, felt, com you know, compelled to, to address it. Um, more directly, right? And to to have it re have it resourced, um, and to have someone help, you know, get a sense of where the barriers are, and kind of create recommendations to address those. Um, so, funnily enough, that town hall that those students ran, I attended to. I attended the night before my PhD defense. So, so right when I get when you're supposed to be thinking about okay, this this is the <laughs> gotta defend, um, you know, the culmination of five and a half years of work. I still found myself um, at that town hall to kind of hear the conversations and and feel the concerns, and then and you know and and see what what could be done to kind of address them. Um, and so once this dean's advisor role uh, was then you know shaped. I, you know, I, you know, I thought that I could definitely contribute and, and, and the faculty felt similarly and took me on and, uh, and the, 
the main the initial primary focus of this role um, was to strike a committee and uh, strike well, the dean struck the committee and I was to chair uh, the Black Inclusion Steering Committee, um, which um, its mission was to do an assessment, a, a faculty assessment to potential barriers to access, inclusion, and success uh, for Black, not only students, but faculty and staff, um, and then try to provide recommendations uh, to address those those barriers. Um, and, you know, there was, you know, a large amount of consultative work done with different stakeholders, both internal and external to the faculty and the university at large. Um, and uh, through the work of that committee, about 26 recommendations were created um, to address uh, various elements of Black inclusivity for staff, faculty, and, and students. Um, and that was released uh, September of 2019. Um, and so that was, you know, about two years. And since then, in, in the last two years, there's been about, there's been tangible progress made on about 18 or so of those 26 recommendations, um, you know, with, of course, definite continued room for improvement and, and growth, for sure. Can you take us into one or two, uh, you know, you said out of the 26 recommendations, something like 19 are, are being acted upon. And, you know, it, it's interesting to hear both how, how it's positively affecting students, but you mentioned it's also about faculty and staff. I wonder maybe if there's one thing around faculty or staff of, of a kind of recommendation and where something something interesting is going on um, with regards to with regards to faculty um, you know there's still there's still work in progress happening there um, you know it's it was a bit of a concern that uh, you know in the 100 year history of of the faculty there had only been one black fac potentially one black faculty member ever luckily in the last uh, three years or so since I, the three and a half years since I started in, in the role, um, we have now hired um, a total of uh, three, three new black faculty members um, with a fourth potentially coming on as well. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's definitely been more intentionality um, for holistic review of, of, of um, you know, of, of applicants, not, not obviously uh, there's, you know, there's nothing like, you know, an, an affirmative action lens or anything being, um, you know, currently applied. Um, but there is more intentionality in, in seeing who is engaging, um, you know, the, uh, well, first of all, who's applying, right? Trying to be better at recruiting diverse talent to even apply. Um, and also just, in, you know, we're seeing now more people engage within their applications, elements of their, their, um, their diversity, but also not only just saying I am black, I am, you know, a woman, but saying how their community development and their experiences help do their job better, right? Or, or how it links to their teaching, their teaching philosophy, their research, their research scopes, um, et cetera. And so it's, it's really led to more diversity um, and representation there as well. Great. Thanks for sharing those two initiatives. And I'd encourage uh, listeners to check it out. I'm on the Equity, Diversity and Inclusion page at uh, engineering.utoronto.ca. Um, so, Mikhail, it's such an interesting journey. I, just a couple of quick questions before we wrap up. Well, sure. You know, it, so now you're plugged in and you're connected to the dean and, and lots of power structures within, uh, you know, this very prestigious institution, the university and the faculty. 
of applied science and engineering. How how's that been for you, personally, just to be able to plug in, you know, and connect to these power structures and and start to make a real difference? It's both it's both amazing and frustrating all at the same time, as as you can possibly you know imagine. Um, on on one hand, you know, being you know operating out of the dean's house. You know, being able to have the air of the dean and other senior administrators, you know, I've worked with, I work very closely um, with uh, the vice dean of undergrad, the vice dean of grad, for, um, the vice dean of first year. Um, you know, I'm going to start working more personally with the now the director of of um, diversity, inclusion and professionalism within our faculty. Um, Who is that? Uh, Marisa uh, Sterling. That, that's Marisa Sterling. Who uh, is also the president of Professional Engineers Ontario. Formally, she formally, she, right, formally. she now yeah. is now she's emeritus. Um, she finally she has a little like now she's graciously let off that role, <laughs> and um, and yeah now is and being you know really focused on on developing elements of, of EDI within the faculty. Um, so yeah, there's you know being having those different voices and having those different connections and, and you know being able to. I like to say be that guy sometimes in that space where you see certain conversations going a certain way and you feel like you need to, you know, interrupt and, and be able to have that, that be that influencing voice because, you know, that voice might not have been there before um, it is now is, is great. Um, but then also sometimes, it, you know, when you're in that space and you see the need for change, but you understand that, you know, some, the process doesn't happen instantaneously, <laughs> right? You know, there's a lot of complexity with not, you know, power structures are, are very complex. The individuals who are in different positions are complex individuals, right? And sometimes when you see a goal, but you understand that there's all these moving parts that have to both be navigated as well as worked with, um, it can some, you can sometimes you know, feel a little anxious, like, oh, the solution's right there. <laughs> Let's get to it, right? Um, but it's, it's, it's overall been uh, quite rewarding. Nice. And, and so what's next for you, Mikhail Burke? What's next in your, your career story? For me personally, uh, you know, I will continue to focus on, you know, I also always be, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Always be engaged um, and, uh, you know, a champion for black inclusivity within our faculty. Um, but um, my, I am soon going to be transitioning to a broader role, uh, looking at, you know, um, directing our, our access and inclusive pedagogical development within the faculty uh, more broadly, because um, I, I do a lot of that work anyway. Um, and so that's kind of being um, tailored there. Um, and, and so I really want to broaden that, broaden that work, broaden that focus, right? What is holistic pedagogy? How do we create inclusive classrooms? How do we empower instructors to be able to have these conversations and, um, and to facilitate such learning? And at the same time, in terms of access, like how do we continue to build you know, pathways into engineering um, for traditionally underrepresented groups, you know, um, within the community, but not only access in that sense, but also access to graduate school, access into the professoriate, um, and uh, access into research um, versus teaching. And so there's, there's a lot of opportunity here, and I think um, a lot of work to be done. And so I really, I'm really looking forward to building up those, those various elements um, over, the, over the coming couple of years. Nice. It sounds like a great, uh, great work, and you know, you're already on that path. So how, how nice to be able to use your experience as a springboard. 
Yeah. And then, you know, teaching, I want to definitely continue uh, to teach and, um, and, and take on, take on a workload there and then mull over whether, um, and, you know, whether joining the professoriate is something that, I, you know, I want to do. Um, you know, I've been thinking about it. Uh, if, if, if I do, it would definitely be teaching stream. Um, cause again, like I said, pedagogy is what I'm interested in. Um, but yeah, just, uh, having some time just to continue to, you know, build, you know, build my experience in, within this very diverse space, um, and figure out, uh, you know, how I want to leverage my skill set moving forward. Last question. Mikhail Burke, uh, you know, now that you've told us a bit about the twists and turns in your story from teaching high school to, to an undergrad in materials and a PhD and now this dean's advisor role, so you've had a lot of twists and turns and made a lot of choices along the way. If there were one thing that you could share with listeners, uh, either a piece of advice or something that you've learned personally about making choices, sometimes tough choices, uh, what can you share with listeners about you know, your own journey and what you learned from it? You know, that's that's actually a very good question, Mark, um, in part because I continue to navigate the answer to that question myself. Um, you know, I'm, I'm someone who uh, often I feel like we suffer from the, you know, the paralysis of choice. <laughs> right? when there's so many potential options that we can take. Um, you know, we're always hung up on, you know, potential opportunity costs by choosing A, I'm missing out on parts of B and vice versa. Um, but what I would say is, at the end of the day, and it's a very underrated, but always, whenever you are making a choice, be very intentional in understanding what it is that you value and, and making happiness the underlying choice. I think sometimes, you know, we, we do we do have obligations, we do have expectations, and that's all that's very important um, and can't be lost. But for me, I would always say just remember, like, self-assessment is an underrated skill. I think a lot of people don't take the time to really delve down and understand what it is that they want. Um, and once you do that, try to be intentional in your choices to match that. And, you know, and, and to make yourself happier. And the, the other things will come. That's something I'm, I myself am continually trying to remind myself of. <laughs> great, great advice. Mikhail Burke, thanks so much for joining us here on Career Buzz. And thank you, Mark. Have a great day. You're listening to Career Buzz on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto and worldwide at CIUT.FM. Stories show that who you are matters. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. Before continuing on with today's show, I want to let listeners know about the Career Buzz podcast archive. Click podcast at careercycles.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Have a listen to the September 9th episode with executive search consultant Stephen Petroff, who shares insights and tips from the recruit perspective. Go to careercycles.com and click podcast or subscribe to the podcast career buzz on your favorite podcast app. Up next, what's a wedding photographer to do when weddings are canceled because of a global pandemic? Jess Okonski started fiddling around in a small wood shop to keep busy, learning how to make rolling pins and bowls that she gave away to friends. Soon, she started getting requests for custom pieces, so she created an online store, developed workshops, and is now founder and owner of Toronto woodworking company This Lady Wood. Hey, Jess Okonski, welcome to Career Buzz. Hi, thank you for having me. This is really great. 
So great to have you um, talking about your career story, Jess. Um, what, what do you like about what you're doing these days? Um, I like that it's very um, me-centric. <laughs> I like that it's really just me in a shop on my own, just kind of building and figuring things out, like a little problem-solving session every day in the shop. Um, I, really, I really like that part of... Uh, what I'm doing. <laughs> and, and so what are you doing? What is This Lady Wood? What is it all about? Uh, this Lady Wood is a wood shop. Um, so I turn on the lathe bowls and plates. Um, I do a little bit of carving, so spoons um, and like kitchen utensils. And slowly and surely I am building up to doing fine furniture. Um, so cabinets, um, hutches, tables. Um, one of the pieces that a lot of people really love are my woven stools and benches. So those are kind of the things that um, come out of this lady wood. And just as listeners are hearing your story, Jess, if they want to find you on the internet so they can scroll through, where do they go? Uh, so if you want to find me, you can look up uh, thisladywood.com. So that's www.thisladywood.com. Or you can find me on Instagram at thisladywood. What skills do you use to be successful in this wood shop and woodworking that you're doing? Because I know there's, there's design and there's hands-on and there's sales and there's internet. There's a lot of different things. What are those skills? Um, those skills are really, you know, any skills that you would find in somebody who's starting any type of entrepreneurship type of thing. Um, you know, one of the things that most people say like, oh, you need woodworking skills, you need that. But really the surprising part of a lot of the skills necessary was the amount of communication required when you're designing with clients, like what it is that they want. Like they don't have the verbiage. Um, so it's a lot of communication skills and really kind of being able to tell them your ideas and showcase them. So things like software is really great. Um, SketchUp is a really great one. Um uh, there's a InDesign, like a lot of different modeling kind of programs that are great to use and like a skill that I actually had to teach myself um, the more I started designing for other people. I didn't have that skill when I started. I was just drawing on, I had drawing skills. So I was drawing on uh, lined paper, blank pages and trying to convey to people, hey, this is what I want to build for you uh, before I started uh after hours kind of teaching myself how to do design programs. Um, so there's a lot of like weird nuances that you wouldn't think need to happen when you do woodworking. Um, but yeah, like there's interesting things to learn outside of the shop when it comes to this job. Right. Like, so it's the software like SketchUp and InDesign, those communication skills for talking to customers and clients. Um, and, and, and then there's also like a, you have a store, it's a retail outlet and you have like a online store. That's a whole skill set yeah. there. So if, if you're not hiring anybody, then you, you know, you're building your own website essentially. And like, thankfully there's a lot of wonderful, um, website pro like out there, like format or Squarespace, um, that are very helpful in just building a very simple shop, Shopify, everyone knows Shopify. Um, to build like a very quick and easy online store. Um, I chose to do my own store on a website as opposed to selling through like Etsy, which is also where, you know, we all see a lot of 
beautifully crafted items being sold on Etsy. So I just personally went with my own store. Um, just easier to manage that way, I think. <laughs> nice. My guest today is Jess Okonski. She is founder and owner of This Lady Wood. I'm your host, Mark Franklin, here on Career Buzz. Jess, let's let's step back in time. You weren't always doing woodworking. I know you did a degree uh, in visual or fine art. What what was the degree and what was the career idea at the time? So, like anybody, I went with my passion. When you first get out of high high school, you're not sure what you want to do, but I loved painting and I loved drawing, um, and it was one of the things that I was very good at. Um, so I went to York University. I did a bachelor's of fine arts um, in painting and uh, photography. Um, so when I came out of university, my plan was originally that I would work in galleries or museums or like get a job at the AGO, you know, like be, be really big on there. Um, but I found that I wasn't interested in the kind of behind the desk type of lifestyle. I was very much like I had to be drawing something, painting something. I was always full of ideas. I should be doing this. I could build that. I could start, you know, photographing these things or this project or this art series. Like I always had these ideas. Um, so I spend a lot of my time mostly just coming up with these ideas and working on those as opposed to really focusing on like getting a good gallery job and working through the steps. Um, but yes, yeah, so my, my plan had originally been working at a gallery, but I ended up as a photographer because it was just filling that creative need that I really desired. It's almost like the photography was a sidebar, a side gig to to the more important career ideas of gallery or museums or whatever, and the side gig became the main gig. Yeah, the side gig ate <laughs> the other gig, basically. Um, it was just more fulfilling for me to, to go out and photograph um, people and um, objects, to, to create series, art series, um, based on emotions and feelings. Uh, you know, your growing pains in your early 20s, you, as an artist, uh, a lot of different ways of expression come out when you're feeling a lot of different ways about your life or where it's going to go. So photography kind of like really crept in and, and took hold of that's going to be what I'm going to do. And that's really what fulfilled a greater passion to like, yeah, we're doing it. We're jumping off the boat. And we're going to go do it. And you were doing weddings and you were doing fashion photography. Things looked pretty good until the pandemic. So how, how good was it before the pandemic? Uh, before the pandemic, it was really great. I was shooting about... 20 to 30 weddings per year, which is a good average and a good um, full calendar for any wedding photographer. On top of that, I did family shoots and portrait sessions. Um, and then just kind of in that last year, I guess like 2019, 2018 is when I had started getting more commercial bookings and seeking more commercial work um, and getting, you know, shooting a little for Bata Shoe Museum, which is funny that the museum came back, but like, so shooting for Bata Shoe Museum, uh, a couple of magazines and brands. Um, so it was really exciting. Like I was, I was really kind of getting a good momentum with photography. Um, 
in by like 2019 from all the years that I had been shooting, which at that point had been about six years. Six years. Um, And just, just for listeners who might be interested in a photography career, how's the money? Like if you do 20 or 30 weddings a year, like, can you give listeners a sense of what kind of money you can make from doing that work? Uh, it's a tough one to really get into because photography doesn't have a, like a salary expect, like set point. You're not, you're not searching, you know, banker, what do they make, you know, a a year salary rise. Photography is really kind of what you price yourself at. Um, so there are photographers who easily make six figures, um, every year between weddings and just selling, uh, albums from the weddings they shoot and just really, um, how to say it, like marketing themselves really well, um, for, for a high price point. And then there are photographers who, you know, it's, it's just a, I wouldn't say it's about like 50 to 60. It's like, it's just a livable, usual type of, uh, wage or salary per year. But it's really hard to kind of say like, you're, you're going to get this if you really start, because it's really how you price yourself and how you sell yourself. For Um, sure. And, and so that's really helpful to get that kind of annual range is in in like a wedding. Like if you say, I'm going to shoot a wedding, I know it's going to be highly variable, but what's a range? Well, weddings, you know, it's been a big talk in the wedding industry a lot to be, okay, let's, if, even if you're a beginner, price yourself at a good point. You know, it's a lot of people start off like I'll do it for free or like in exchange for something or they'll price very low, like 700 or like $800 for a full day wedding. And like, you, you're not going to succeed. You, you will burn out very fast if you don't set an expectation for clients um, that this is what I'm bringing to the table. And like, even if you think like, oh, I'm not good enough to price myself that point. The thing is, photography is a lot of work. So even if you think like, oh, if I price a six-hour wedding at $2,000, that's crazy. That's a good starting point for someone who wants to get into photography because you have to buy software, Photoshop, Lightroom. That's a monthly or an annual. Photo mechanic, that's also a monthly or an annual. Presets, maybe you want somebody else to edit the work. Calling all the photos that you've taken takes time. Editing all those photos you've taken takes time emailing back and forth like it, for sure there are yeah everyone thinks it's just a day there is a lot behind the scenes for it like so don't i would say don't sell yourself short start like where you think you're going to be and then just double that number like what like make sure you're scared of that number when you put it out there first like because otherwise you won't succeed you won't get there good advice my guest today <laughs> is jess okonski founder and owner of this lady wood i'm your host mark franklin here on career buzz so, Jess, the pandemic came and that, you know, we haven't been to too many weddings. They're coming back slowly, but clearly that had a big effect on photographers. So how did you, how did you manage that and then connect the dots for us from photography to this lady would? Um, so as the, I guess, like the months or the weeks started creeping in when we all started getting the realization that, okay, this is, this is something's going to happen with this. Um, you know, at the beginning of 2020, I had a full year booked. I was ready for my season. You know, winter is normally our off time because not a lot of people get married in the winter. Um, so I was gearing up for my, you know, my first wedding was February. My next would be in April. And then the pandemic hit. 
and people started postponing weddings first just in like April and March time when we had first um, had that two-week lockdown. Um, And then as that two-week lockdown became longer and everyone realized, oh, oh crap, (laughs) like this is going to go, that's when the panic really set in. So I had a ton of emailing back and forth, a lot of talking, a lot of managing customer expectations, you know, back to communication of here's what we can do. Here's what the province says we can do. Maybe we push to this day. Am I free that day? Okay, we can move it over. It's like, you know, there was cancellations. There was a lot of um, difficult conversations to have with clients because, you know, weddings cost a lot of money. and, And when this all kind of hit, it really crumbled for a lot of people. And then, you know, so everything moved or got canceled. And I had all of a sudden a whole year where I had no work, essentially. I did not have the income that I was used to making. And I had a small panic (laughs) attack. I'm like, what do I do? Um, You know, I had finished it up editing or doing any little batches of photo work that I had on my table. But by when that finished... I was sitting at home and it was actually my partner, Adam, noticing that I was getting a little bit more sadder and sadder every day, um, who encouraged me to just come in to the shop um, where he works and just start playing around on the lathe. I had done a few things on it ages ago. Um, He's like, just play around. Everyone's baking. Make a rolling pin or something. Just, Just come in and do something. I can't have you sit at home. You're looking too sad. And I was like, okay. So I I went in and that's kind of where I started. Like I just started making things. Um, So we should say this is, uh, when you said the workshop, this is space work where where you've been at. Yeah. So spacework.ca I think is the place for people who are interested in those kinds of workspaces to do something like you were doing. So, so you're playing around, you're getting your hands dirty, literally, with so, some woodworking equipment. And so how did that evolve into, hey, I can maybe make stuff for people or do courses? Well, it started with me just giving away the items, really. Um, I was going in, you know, turning bowls, you know, little, I got a little tiny one here, <laughs> tiny bowls and and small objects and rolling pins. Everyone was baking at that time. It was like the pandemic baking boom at the beginning of uh, the 2020 shutdown. So I made rolling pins for friends and family and I just kind of gave them away because I was accumulating a lot. I was spending days in there just um, trying to get the hours to pass and I gave them away and then people started getting really interested. They would show their friends, their friends would be like, oh, I want one of those. So they would contact me and I just started selling them. We'd be like, okay, yeah, I'll totally make a bowl for you. It's, it'll be X amount and I'll make it out of this wood. Does that work? Great. Um, so it was really kind of friends and family that got the ball rolling. Um, and the more that the interest kind of came in and the more my interest grew in trying to make bigger objects or, oh, now that I know this tool, I think I can make this. Let's, let's go um, and, and try that that's kind of where like if I started turning, you know, pandemic shutdown was March. I started coming into the shop at spacework.ca. My shop is in there with a bunch of other people. I started coming to the shop about end of April. Um, And then by August is when I had kind of peak interest of people wanting to buy my bowls and my plates. Um, And that was when I was 
did my first little piece of furniture um, that even got more recognition from other people. And that's where more requests started coming in for larger and bigger pieces. Um, and it was pretty much around September that I was like, you know what? I think I can do this. <laughs> like, it took a few months, but it, and it wasn't until September of that year that I'm like, you know what? I think I'm going to do this. So for those looking on the recording, I've got some of the pages scrolling by from thisladywood.com. Um, not only were you making the bowls and the furniture, Jess, but at a certain point you started to say, hey, I can teach this. And you started yes. running classes. And I know in addition to that, you got some really great coverage from a certain media outlet. So the courses and the media coverage, how did that all work? Um, so this is, you know, this is kind of a great correlation of switching careers and networking, I guess, because the media coverage came in July, uh, June, July of 2021. So at this point I had been doing, I had started making List Lady Wood happen in September of 2020. And so it'd been about six or seven months of building larger furniture, showcasing it on my Instagram, both on my old photography Instagram, um, and now the new This Lady Wood Instagram. And a lot of the people who were photographers who followed me on This Lady Wood, uh, uh, Jessica Konsky, my full name for photography, um, were following me on This Lady Wood. And as photography started getting back in, they were heading back into work. And actually one of them works for Toronto Life. Um, so when they started, when Toronto Life decided to make a feature on pandemic shifts uh, and what people had started doing instead of their normal work, um, she put my, my name in. So a fellow photographer was the one that put my name in uh, to showcase my new work as a woodworker. So that's where the feature came in. Um, and then when that feature came out, I'd already been getting a lot of questions about, do you teach? Can you teach me? I really want to learn. Like I'm a woman and I always wanted to do woodworking, but I haven't done it. Like, so, and then once the, the article came out, the requests for teaching, like then it really boomed. And I was like, okay, I'll do a few, I'll do a few workshops. Let's, let's see what we can do. Um, so then it kind of started from there. Um, yeah, that's crazy. <laughs> and so now, and so that was a few months ago with this great Toronto Life article, which I read was so fabulous. Um, so, so you know, what about the sustainability now? Like, you've got a kind of going concern. You're you're selling uh, turned objects and furniture, and there's custom furniture. There's courses. You know, you got that nice bump from the media coverage. Um, mm -hmm. You know, and here we are doing this interview in September. So how are things going and how does it look for you moving forward as a viable career option? Um, it's looking really great, <laughs> actually. Like um, the media bump was really like a good skyrocket. Um, you know, at one minute you feel like you're just kind of slowly going up on the roller coaster. And then in this case, it kind of slingshotted me forward um, to to a really good place um, to the point where I, I moved into a larger shop. I was selling and designing enough that I was able to move in from my tiny shop to a larger shop. Um, and between custom orders that are coming in and uh, workshops and classes that people are still requesting and different ideas for different workshops, even as uh, a workshop as simple as, you know, tools 101. Um, I've been talking with a, a really lovely girl who wants to build her own 
a tiny home one day. Um, so she's been interested in learning a few things. So even just learning tools uh, can be a great way for anybody to start. Um, so yeah, and really the goal and the aim as I slowly kind of work through all this um, is to actually hire on two women um, to be a part of the team so that this lady, what isn't just me, that it's actually just a ladies making beautiful, fine furniture together. <laughs> nice. So, so that's what's next is you're going to build a kind of uh, team or is it going to be employees, do you think, or an associate ship? How's that going to work? Um, not too sure. I, I believe they'll probably start as just apprentices first um, and then move on to more solid team. Like my vision of the person that I would hire would be someone who definitely wants to make woodworking uh, a full-time gig um, and has intentions of designing and creating their own furniture um, and designs as well. Um, and not just like recreating what I'm doing, but someone that would add different dimensions to the type of woodwork that I do currently and kind of expand it out and grow from there. Nice. It sounds promising. And is it, has it replaced, you know, from an, uh, a revenue generating or income point of view, has it replaced equally or, or better the photography that you were doing before? Um, it's kind of equal and sometimes better than. Um, the thing with woodworking is that it's, it's year round. Like there isn't really a, in weddings, you know, like winter kind of becomes a downtime, but the woodworking actually peaked around Christmas, obviously gifts and things like that, um, kind of quieted down, but then I had design work that I was doing, uh, for people. So it, it's been really good in terms of a steady stream of income. Um, but it's still, it's still an entrepreneur craft type of gig. So there are some months that are really high revenue and then there are other months that are lower revenue. So you're kind of balancing out your um, month, <laughs> month to month. You're balancing out the money to, to make it stretch out for the whole year in an even way. Right Does on. That <laughs> so like lots of people starting their own business and many did during and after the pandemic, you know, to expect a bit of a roller coaster, both emotionally and financially. Yes. Yes. I mean, even just starting this, I mean, like I had, you know, I, I made the decision and I said it out loud to the universe. I'm doing this. This is what's going to happen for the next months and years of my life. I was like, I'm going to do this. Um, I still love photography and I still do a little, it's become the side hustle again. Like <laughs> photography has kind of become the side again. Um, it made its arc and it's become, uh, something that I do on the side for, you know, more creative outlet and, and joy. But, uh, but the woodworking has kind of become the main, main, main guy. <laughs> it's, a, it's a lovely story of side gigs becoming the main gig. There's a bit of a theme yeah. to your story, Jess. So last, last question, with, with the twists and turns that you've experienced and the resilience that you've shown during the pandemic to come up with this you know, fabulous plan B, what, what can you share with listeners? Um, either advice or, or something, a lesson learned from your own experience. If people are trying to face tough choices, maybe contemplating starting their own business now because of the pandemic, uh, what, what have you learned that you can share with listeners? Um, uh, 
man, there's like so many that kind of comes to mind. Sorry. Um, I mean, the easiest thing advice would be like, just do it. <laughs> like you're never going to be like done is better than perfect. So just do it. Um, cause you're never going to be, you know, if you imagine yourself in some, it's only going to happen if I have these things in order, you'll never, you'll never start. Um, so just, so just start. Um, another thing that was a, a really good learning experience is just that everyone, everyone believes they're an imposter when they start anything. It's like, so just don't, don't believe it. Like you're fine. <laughs> Um, but yeah, the big one is really just start, like whatever idea you have, um, there's a market for it. Like you, it always seems, um, I think we always fool ourselves into thinking a market is too saturated for people to, to want to buy any more of it, but you're not, they're not buying whatever your idea is. They're buying you. So, you know, you have to put yourself out there and you have to just show up as the best version of the person that's doing this thing. (laughs) Great advice. Done. Done is better than perfect. Done better than perfect. Just, just do it. Jess Okonski, thanks so much for joining us here on Career Buzz and sharing your story today. Thank you so much for having me, Mark. This was really fun. You've been listening to Career Buzz. Stories show that who you are matters. I'm your host, Mark Franklin. You can find out more about me at careercycles.com. Thanks to my guests today, Mikhail Burke and Jess Okonski. Technical production today was by Lucy Welsh. Subscribe to Career Buzz on your favorite podcast app and find it at the podcast link at careercycles.com. Catch Career Buzz. Career Buzz Live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on CIUT. That's it for today's episode of Career Buzz. Thank you for listening.